Thanks for listening to the gathering from Storyline Church. We all want to be good, virtuous, even heroic. But most of the time, we feel less like the hero of the story and more like a victim or villain. This past week at the gathering, we explored why the Bible includes stories of real people who did both wonderful and terrible things and why embracing the true story of our humanity is how we can find true belonging. The band performed songs from the head and the heart, killers and the civil wars. Let's have a listen.
did my best to notice when the call came down the line. Up to the platform of surrender, I was broad but I was kind. And sometimes I get nervous when I see an open door. Close your eyes, clear your heart. Cut the cord. Are we human? Or are we dancer? My sign is vital. My hands are cold. And I'm on my knees looking for the answer. Are we human? Or are we dancer? Sunday. I'm Megan Francis, if you don't already know me. I'm really hoping that the tech will cooperate today, and if not, I've got my paper copy and my reading glasses right over there, so I think I'll be good. 
So when I was a kid, my brother John and I used to go to a Wednesday evening youth group with some family friends. It wasn't the church our family went to, but it was known as the best youth group in town. Um, it pulled in lots of kids from other local churches, and no, that was not in this town. <laughs> but I think that's similar all around the land. And it also brought in a lot of kids who didn't go to any church. They always had great programming, they had fun music, they had games. And I think this was the real draw. They also served tons of super junky snacks. So I liked that this youth group wasn't at my family's home church because that meant I had a whole new audience to show off to, specifically my skills in memorizing Bible verses. I was the kid who would memorize every single verse every single week, sometimes to earn a prize, sometimes just to get approval from the adults, and uh, often to feel a little bit superior to the other kids, including my brother. <laughs> my older brother also really liked this youth group, but I always got the feeling he was really just there for the food. And because this wasn't our home church, my mom wasn't there and she would never know. She would never know that he absolutely gorged himself every week on Doritos and Fago Red Pop and this whole smorgasbord. And I wouldn't say my mom was like against treats or against sugar or anything like that, but she definitely had a sense of propriety about it and like proportion. In my mom's world, you did not just go to a church buffet and stuff 16 cookies in your face and like wash it down with half a jug of Kool-Aid. You, you took a reasonable amount and you ate it like a respectable human being. My brother was the kind of kid who really bristled under limits of any kind. And if you have kids, maybe you have one of those. He was always looking for ways to break the rules. And he just really liked junk food, <laughs> really loved sugar. So one Wednesday when he was about 12 and I was about eight, we had just gotten home from youth group. And this particular night had really been one for the books for me, I gotta say. So we were in the middle of this lesson that was called Fishers of Men, and we'd each been given a little white sailor hat, and then you could earn pins for the sailor hat by memorizing Bible verses. Well, there was only one thing I liked better back then than the prizes, and better than the adult approval, and that was getting to feel kind of smug and self-righteous, especially compared to my brother John. And I had cleaned up that night. I had memorized every single verse, all the assigned ones plus the bonus ones. Those were the really hard ones. I had no idea what they were about, but never mind that. I got the pins. I had so many pins. This hat was covered. My brother's night had gone a little bit differently. I don't think he brought home any pins ever. In fact, I think he lost the hat the first night we got it. He might have like thrown it at another kid and then just ran off and left it. But he did hit that cookie tray and that chip bag and the Fago <laughs> red pop so hard that the sugar coated his teeth and then the red dye number 40 from the pop like stuck to the sugar. So my brother comes home that night with all of his night's sins literally adhered to his teeth. This big red smile. And all the way home, our, friend, uh, our friend's parents were driving us. I'm thinking, oh, I can't wait till my mom sees this. I was feeling so smug, even smugger than usual. And so we come into the house and I sit down uh, in the rocking chair in the living room and I get out my Bible and I kick back, kind of just waiting for the judgment to begin. And in the meantime, of course, I started getting ahead on next week Bible verses because I planned to memorize every single one and totally own 
all the other kids there. I was going to win more pins than anybody. And now I'm sure at least one of those verses was probably about humility, maybe something in there about, you know, f- like family love, loving your brother, maybe something about compassion. I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. I wanted the pins. Okay? Now listen, I wasn't looking for my brother to be like dramatically taken out or anything like that. I loved my brother. He's still one of my very best friends. But I really wanted that recognition for being so good. So in my fantasy of how the night would go, I thought maybe at some point my mom would kind of lean over and notice and say how nice it was to see me sitting there reading my Bible. And then she might sort of cast a somewhat disgusted look at my brother and say something like, gosh, it sure would be nice to see you reading your Bible. That's not how that night played out. Um, And in the end, I don't actually remember if she even noticed what I was doing, but that is what my righteous little eight-year-old heart wanted so much at that moment. So I'm sitting in the rocking chair. I'm repeating Bible verses under my breath. I am just marinating in my own goodness. And my mom is on the end of the sofa nearest me, and then at the other end of the sofa is my brother. And he's not looking too hot. And I mean, it's understandable because at that very moment that I'm committing John 3.16 to memory, my brother John has got about two liters of carbonated corn syrup and a pound of cookies and chips making their way through his digestive system. So I'm watching him out of the corner of my eye, just waiting for that moment of reckoning when my mom will finally lay into him. And then suddenly, in one motion, he sits up, he turns his head, and he projectile vomits a Fago Red Pop Dorito geyser right onto the rug. And we all froze. Because it took some time to actually realize what had just happened, right? I didn't actually think people threw up with that much force and precision. Um, it was like CGI, really. It's just in my mind, that's all I can see. And then, while a little tiny part of me still wants my mom to give my brother the business, a bigger part of me is kind of terrified because things just got real, right? This was proof that he'd made a glutton of himself and the evidence of all of his transgressions were literally in plain sight, like all over my mom's rug, which was beyond saving, and we definitely did not have the money to replace it. So there's a couple things you should know about the rest of the story. Number one, this wasn't the first throw-up incident, including my brother, okay? There was another story that had become family legend about a time where we were all sick, including my mom, and she was down on her knees uh, changing my diaper on the floor, and my brother climbed on her back and threw up on her and me over her shoulder. So that was like family legend. But I'm not going to accuse him of intentionally wielding his vomit like some kind of weapon or anything. He was just that kid. He was the kind of kid who got himself into so many messes. He was really strong-willed, and he and my mom butted heads a lot as he got older. And you should also know that my mom was also pretty stubborn, and she was a single mom of four kids, and she ran a daycare out of our home. So by the end of the day, she was done. She did not have time or patience for nonsense, and this was a lot of nonsense. So the little scene that was playing out in our living room suddenly felt like a tinderbox. And I think when you're a kid with siblings and there's some kind of drama, there's a little part of you that kind of wants your sibling to kind of get what they have coming. Like maybe it's a payback for all those times you had to do the dishes, even though it was their turn, or they got the better fork, 
or maybe the times they waited at the top of the stairs to jump out and scare you when you went to bed like every night for two years like my brother did to me. But then there's the other part of you who feels like your sibling is on your team and you don't actually want them to die. And in that moment, I wasn't sure he was gonna make it. I sat there waiting for something really terrible to happen, like maybe he'd get like, struck by lightning or turn into a ball of fire or a pillar of salt or something. I mean, I think some of those Bible verses I had been reading had some smiting in them, and that might have been you know, in the back of my head. So anyway, there was a large amount of tension in the air. <laughs> And today, with the benefit of being a mom myself, I just kind of remember my mom taking this really slow inhale while the angel and the devil on you know, either shoulder kind of battled it out. And then after a beat, she just looks at my brother and says, do you feel better now? <laughs> and then the two of them rolled up the rug and they took it out to the road to be picked up by the trash collectors. And I went to bed. And I have to say, I felt a little deflated. <laughs> All of my accomplishments that night, all of the things I was so proud of, had been completely overshadowed by my brother's dramatic regurgitation. And all of my goodness had gone kind of unnoticed. Um, or at least overshadowed by like this digestive exorcism that had just happened. And it, it just didn't seem fair. I had gone from being the hero of the story that I was writing in my head to being a pretty forgettable character. So I'm working on a book right now. Um, I have a publisher, I have a contract, I have a deadline just about three months away, and it's starting to dawn on me, especially because I went back and read all the fine print in the contract, that they actually are serious about that deadline. I was kind of hoping they didn't mean it, but they, they do. So I'm spending a lot of time right now thinking about this book and asking myself what I'm trying to accomplish with it. And then panicking because I'm pretty sure I'll never get it done. And then the panicking takes up the time and the energy that I could be using to write. So then I find myself looking for things to do to distract me from that panic, like, like speaking right now. <laughs> when Mike asked me to speak this weekend, I was like, yes, I am on it. Because for a writer, there's no better procrastination than working on a piece of writing that's not the writing you're supposed to be working on. So anyway, this book has been kind of tough to get traction on. And I think that's partly because it's really personal and partly because I'm actually living through what I'm writing about right now. It's a book about parenting, but it's not a parenting advice book. It's more about the experience of motherhood as you go from actively parenting little kids to shifting into sort of a different kind of motherhood as your kids get older. I have five kids. The oldest is 26, and the youngest is almost 15. So I am in the middle of this really weird period where I'm going from having a full house just a few years ago to what eventually will be an empty nest. But it's like the slowest stopping startingest thing ever. So the kids will leave, then they come back, then one leaves and one comes back. And if you have young adult kids, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about right now. And then even the kids who are still home, the teenagers, I mean, they still need me, but it's just not the same as the way they needed me when they were babies, or five, or ten. They've always been their own people, but the older they get, the more I have to kind of hand over the reins and let them figure things out for themselves. And that can be really hard to do. So in this book, I'm going to be sharing not only the story of the stage I'm in right now, but how it intertwines with the stories of these five human beings, and how that relationship with your kids changes, and then what's left when you're not the parent in charge of everything anymore. I'm having to ask myself 
what is this new relationship I'm trying to form with my children as they get older, as they become adults? It's pretty loaded, I have to say, and there's a lot of temptation to simplify it all and to only tell the stories or remember the stories that kind of paint me in this light of having everything figured out. Uh, maybe being the mom with the fisherman hat with all the pins on it, right? Basically to make myself the hero of the story with nothing but answers to share and nothing but wisdom. And I'm really resisting that temptation because much like smug little Megan reading Bible verses to win prizes, I just don't think it makes for a very good story. In fact, if you look back at the same Bible verses I was memorizing, you can kind of see the truth in that. And maybe that can tell me, as a writer, something about how to write a story that's good and hopeful, and how to help humans see, as the Bible did, that overall story of humanity and God and our place in this big picture. I keep thinking about the Bible, and not just because it's a bestseller, although it's good to keep your eye on that when you're writing a book. Um, But I, I think I'm thinking about it because I know that the reason this story endures and touches people and changes lives is because it's real and it's hopeful. So if the Bible was just full of people doing everything right and the lesson was just to do everything like them, or if it was only about people doing everything wrong and the lesson was to do nothing like them, then it would be a textbook or an instruction manual. Like, follow these tips and you can be holy too. But it's not that. It's not an instruction manual and it's not a textbook. It's a collection of stories that connect us to the entire human story. And so in order for these stories to help us feel connected, they have to be true and they have to be hopeful. And I think they're hopeful because in reading them, we see people just like ourselves. And we see that those people were real and flawed and yet they still belonged in the story. So like I shared, as a kid, I read a lot of the Bible. Um, Probably most of it went over my head. And I think kids often get these sort of sanitized versions of the story anyway. We just learn certain verses or certain stories. So I learned about David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den and Noah's ark and dozens of stories like that. And they were thrilling and exciting. And the way they were presented to me, or at least the way I understood them, was that there was a clear message that God's people were good, always good, heroic, and that their righteousness would be rewarded. So then as an adult, I was away from the Bible for quite a long time. And when I returned to it, I gotta say, I was in kinda in for a rude awakening. It was totally different returning to the text with grown-up reading comprehension skills. And then to be reading it all the way through instead of just simplified versions of the most popular stories. And my first thought was, Oh my goodness, all these people are terrible. All those verses I had thought as a kid were about heroic and holy people getting their just rewards turned out to be a lot more seedy. There's pretty rampant greed and violence and lust and deception and trickery and adultery. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, is basically one big Jerry Springer episode. And of course, there's heroic moments, but then they're all wrapped up with the rest of it. Like one page, you read about someone doing something gallant and wonderful, and then you turn the page and you're like, wait, they did what to who with what, huh? Oh. And once in a while in the Old Testament, God gets really fired up and he makes a point of showing his displeasure. But sometimes, often actually, the person just gets away with it, or they seem to get away with it. 
and the gallant and the wonderful thing and then the terrible thing are both just wrapped up in one story. And then we as the reader have to sort of sort it out. And you know, I really struggled with that for a long time because I think I only wanted the Bible to be full of stories of gallant people doing wonderful things and getting rewarded for it or doing terrible things and getting punished for it. I wanted it to be full of victims getting avenged and the righteous getting rewarded and then the villains paying for their crimes. And I wanted it to be really clear which group was which. But instead, we get a story of humanity, people who are victims and villains and heroes, sometimes all at the same time. So that's a different story than what I thought I'd find, but it's really the story of being human. These are just flames Burning in your fireplace I hear your voice And it seems As if it was all a dream I wish it was all a dream I see a world Turning in on itself Are we just like Hungry wolves hound in the night I don't want no music tonight
So let's get back to talking about my brother throwing up on the rug, okay? <laughs> Why not? This is my payback for all those times he got away with not doing the dishes or jumping out and scaring me before bed or getting to use the better fork. Um, anyway, three and a half decades after that happened, my brother and I still tell that story a lot. And yeah, there's the gross out factor. That always gets a laugh. But personally, I think the story is a lot stronger when I set it up with my brother groaning and squirming on the sofa looking like a dentist's worst nightmare, contrasted with me being so good, sitting there with my Bible and my pins and my clean teeth. And then we get to the part where he turns the house into a horror movie set. Because if I just told the part about myself reading the Bible, it would be very boring. I promise you, not one time since 1986 has anyone said, like, kids, climb up on grandpa's knee and let me tell you a story about this little girl who won every single pin for her hat for reading Bible verses. That's not a good story. It's boring, first of all, but it's also just kind of obnoxious. The only thing that makes my goodness relatable at all is to point out how actually ridiculous and false and what a veneer it was. And actually, just throwing up on a rug isn't a great story either. What makes the two together so funny and so relatable is the contrast between, between the smug person covering up their own flaws with this false goodness and righteousness, and then the person whose mistakes are so plainly visible, like in the case of my brother, all over the floor. So I've been keeping all of this in mind while I'm deciding which stories to share in my book. I don't want them to be all the stories that make me look like an amazingly well-adjusted human who got my kids through childhood without a hitch and launched them all one by one into successful adult lives, perfectly on schedule. Um, I don't think that book would go very far. It'd be like two stories maybe, and they'd be kind of lies. And then those kids leapt gracefully into their lives and the mom leaps gracefully into the next stage of her life. And if you follow my tips, you can too. That's not true and it wouldn't be relatable. But I also don't want it to be all complaints about this stage of life either, or all self-deprecation, because that wouldn't be true, and it wouldn't be relatable. I think what I'm trying to do instead is for someone who's facing this period of transition 
from one kind of life into another kind of life to read this book and realize they have company. Your struggles aren't new and that someone else right now is going through something very similar. And I want to acknowledge that things can be really hard while also giving the reader hope that ultimately they're going to be okay. And that is ultimately what the Bible does, even the NC-17 parts. Just like the characters in those stories I memorized as a kid and then had to kind of relearn with adult eyes, I've kept messing up over and over throughout my life, often in the same ways I messed up way back then. I don't actually collect pins for a hat anymore, and in a lot of ways, life has humbled me, but I've still got pride and smugness and ways I try to set myself apart as righteous so that I can feel safe or worthy or get other people to pat me on the head, maybe. I will say, though, that I, since I've been picking a lot of my brother this morning, I don't think he's thrown up on anyone else's rug since. So he has made some progress. Good for him. <laughs> but, you know, looking back at that night all those decades ago, I really got to hand it to my mom. Those were stressful times for our family, and her especially, and she could have taken out a lot of her frustration on my brother. She could have really laid on the guilt. She could have gone totally nuclear, and I think anyone would understand. But I actually don't think she said a word about that rug, not that night, never again later, except to join us in laughing at it, about it, you know, later, like way later when she was able to laugh about it. In that moment, my mom had a choice to punish or to kind of let the natural consequences stand, <laughs> as they already had, right? To extend grace and roll up the rug. And that's what she did. It occurred to me as I was writing this talk that some of the same things that make the Bible stories so real and true but sometimes confusing is that God treats us the same way I want to treat my kids but often fail to treat my kids, especially now that they're getting so much older and most of them are adults. In this stage of parenting, I'm struggling with a little slice of what Mike Gathright often refers to as God's problem. I want to have loving relationships with my kids. I want them to do the right thing because it's good for them. But I want to give them the freedom to choose the right paths for themselves and give them the freedom to be themselves. I want to make sure they know they're accepted no matter what, but I have standards and I don't want them to make choices that will hurt them either. So how do I balance those things? How do I know when it's time to sit back and let things play out, let the natural consequences happen, and when it's time to, like, do a little smiting. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Uh, but the Bible and the way God and Jesus show up in those stories all remind us that in the madness and the greed and the violence and the vanity and the foolishness of human history, the constant is that we've never been alone. We aren't alone now, and we won't be alone in the future. And as a parent, I also know that means God does not approve of everything we do, just as I don't approve of everything my kids do. But Jesus is there to remind us that even at those most flawed moments, even in the flawed parts we play, whether right now you're playing the villain or the victim or the hero, whether in this moment you're the rug puker or the pin hoarder, whatever you've done, whoever you are, there's someone on your side. Over and over, Jesus remind us, reminds us that there's room for all of us. 
The Gospels are stuffed with stories of Jesus essentially saying, you belong. And that included both the people who wore their mistakes very publicly, like the woman caught in adultery, or those who hid their failings under an outward guise of goodness, like the Pharisees who, by the way, Jesus criticized, but this is something I didn't really realize until recently. He also befriended them. He still made space for them in the story. And if there's room for those people in the story, and the characters from all the Bible stories I was reading as a kid, then there's room for the smug little girl with the pins on her hat, and there's room for the rebellious glutton, and there's room for the harried mom who just wants to get through the night without anything else going sideways. And there's room for the neighbor next door who maybe gossips to another neighbor about watching these people, you know, carrying a rolled up rug out to the curb under cover of night. And there's room, definitely room, for the poor trash guys who had to pick it up the next day. By the way, I really hope they picked it up like this and not like, like that. <laughs> My point is that we've all been more than one of those characters because in some ways we are every single character in every single story. We're the victim, we're the villain, we're the hero, sometimes all in the same paragraph. And the one thing that really makes it feel okay somehow is the thread of connection that holds us together and that reminder that in those stories, like now, we have never really been alone.
You know, one of my favorite things about the family I grew up in and the family that I've raised are that we are a bunch of storytellers. We all tell stories about each other and about ourselves as a unit. And I love that there's room for all of us in the stories. In fact, what I think makes our stories so great is that everybody gets to have a part. It's a really important way to remind us all that we belong. And that's why the more I kind of dig into the Bible, the more impressed I am with how it includes everyone and everything. Everyone you know, everyone you are, everything you've done or have been tempted to do, it's all there. And looking at the Bible through that lens that this is a story where these real, imperfect, sometimes extremely flawed people still get to belong in God's world still got to hang out with Jesus. That really helped me make sense of some stuff that on first read just came across as a mess of like dysfunctional drama. Because it's true, we humans are pretty full of dis dysfunction and drama and ruined carpets. But because of grace, we also get to belong. None of us are really alone. And I think that is a reason to keep reading those stories and sharing our own stories with each other. Let's pray. God, please help us to see ourselves in the stories that you have provided us, to know that we belong, to see each other in those stories, and to see you through each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.